I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central. We're certainly glad uh, that you've joined us this morning. Uh, and for the next 35 to 40 minutes, we're going to spend some time looking at the Bible together, and we're going to open up God's Word. And so this is what we do on a Sunday morning. If you're new here, we spend a good chunk worshiping God like we just did, and then we spend a good chunk looking at God's Word together. And the reason we do that is because we want to understand God's Word, and we want to apply it to our lives. We want to be changed by it. So we don't just do a little five-minute talk, a nice little spiritual poem, and then off we go. We want to get into God's Word because as a church, we believe that it is the Word of God. We don't just call it the Word of God. We believe it's the Word of God. And so as such, we believe what it says about itself, that it pierces us, that it changes us, that the Word of God brings life. Jeremiah said that God's Word is like a hammer that shatters the heart of stone. That's what we believe the Word of God is, and so we believe when we spend time in it and studying it and applying it to our life that the Spirit comes and works through that and brings change. So that's what we're going to do for the next 40 minutes or so. All right? So why don't we pray for that? Why don't we pray for that? God, we're just so thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the privilege that we have to gather together and to worship you. And we're thankful for your word, that we have such free access to it, that we uh, have it such so readily available to us. And we pray as we come now to your word and we read about your son Jesus and what he went through on the cross, we pray that your spirit would bring us understanding, uh, that your spirit would bring life, uh, that your spirit would bring application. Uh, we pray, Father, for you to do a great work in the next uh, 40 minutes through your word, by your spirit. We pray we want to be transformed. We want to see life come. Uh, we want to be changed in your presence. So we just say, do it, Father, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> so for the last four weeks, when you and I have been together, when it's been me up here, uh, we've been looking at Jesus' words from the cross, and uh, we've been looking at, uh, there's seven sayings, I think, that Jesus said from the cross, and we've been working our way through those, and uh, as you remember, we've called it the famous last-ish words to remind us that uh, these aren't Jesus' last words because he rose again, and because he rose again, he speaks again, and because he lives today, he speaks today. So we want to focus on these words. They're, they're big, weighty, important words uh, that have a lot of power in them, but we don't want to see them as the words of a man who is dying to never live again. He uh, rose again three days later, and he lives today, and he speaks today. All right, so we read through, uh, and as I read through these words, I just can't help but think of how Jesus said them, why Jesus said them, what was it like when he looked out at the crowd and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, what was it like when he glanced over at the, at the thief, a freshly repented thief, and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And remember we looked at how, how could Jesus take his mind off himself and what he was going through and look out at his mother and, and at the disciple John and say, uh, behold your son, behold your mother, and care for her in that way. And then the last time, that, that just that cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, just these words from Jesus, 
Powerful words from Jesus. And so we come to the fifth saying that Jesus said. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn. We'll go back to John 19. We were there a few weeks ago. We'll go back to John 19. And we'll read from verse 28. John 19, verse 28. And we'll read right through to the end. Okay, so Jesus is on the cross. He's been on there for a while now. uh, And he realizes that he's coming uh, near the end of his life. Uh, He's looked out at at the disciple and said, Behold your mother, behold your son. That's just in the verse before. And so he's, he's realizing he's coming to the end. He's in excruciating pain. His whole body weight is bearing down on one nail through his two feet. He can barely breathe now. Every breath would just be stinging with pain. And we come to verse 28. And it says, After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh, and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So our focus... This morning is on the two short words in verse 28 where Jesus says, it's the shortest of the sayings uh, from the cross, where Jesus says, I thirst, I thirst. John tells us that Jesus is aware that all was now finished. He still had to die, but he knew that he had accomplished the will of the Father. And he says, I thirst. And so let's look at three things about Jesus' words, I thirst. First, we'll look at what it means for Jesus himself. Then we'll look at what it means for the church. And then we'll look at what it means for the world. All right? What it means for Jesus, for the church, and for the world. So first, what it means for Jesus. What it means for Jesus himself. Jesus crying out, I thirst from the cross once again, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, this time from Psalm 69. 
is a declaration that Jesus was indeed a man. One of the foundations of the Christian faith is that Jesus, the Messiah, was fully God and fully man. And through the years, that has been questioned and disregarded from both sides of that. So today, most people would say that Jesus is just a first century Jewish radical who said some pretty wild things and eventually got himself killed for it. And he was just your basic run-of-the-mill cult leader with a crazy following that's lasted because some people were able to write his teachings down, right? So when you go to chapters, you see books about how Jesus became God and how we built him up and made him more than how than what he actually was. And when you get to Easter time and you turn on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, you see show after show after show of who was this man, Jesus, and they bring in all their scholarly experts to talk about how Jesus was just a Jewish man who lived in the first century in Nazareth, right? So that would be one uh, stream that people go down. On the other side, in the early church, uh, there's a teaching called Docetism. Docetists believe that matter was evil, and so Jesus couldn't have been physical. He couldn't have had uh, a material, physical body. And so that's what they taught. They taught that Jesus didn't have a human body. It only appeared so. And he didn't actually die. It just seemed that way. And so Jesus, to them, was kind of like a first century version of Gem and the Holograms. <laughs> or, or maybe the doctor from Star Trek Voyager. He looks like a human, and he acts like a human, but he's not really a human. Jesus didn't die. It only seemed that way. And so a similar view is taken today in the teaching of Islam. The Quran says of Jesus, they slew him not nor crucified him, but it appeared so unto them. And so we have this, this foundation of our Christian faith that God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And it's doubted and disregarded from either side. But John will have none of it. And he opens his gospel with the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so the eternal word became a flesh, a, a bone and flesh human being. And he wants us to see that God took on flesh and lived as a man, that he is fully God and fully man at the same time. He's not a 50-50 hybrid. He's not some weird divine cyborg thing. He is fully God and fully man at the same time. And so he shows us here how Jesus thirsted, how when he was pierced, blood and water flowed from him. This was a man hanging on a cross. It wasn't a phantom. It wasn't an illusion. It was a middle-aged Jewish man with blood cells and nerves and veins and skin tissue and muscles. This was a man. And he had a physical heart that was beating, and he had physical lungs that were inhaling and exhaling. And I think for myself at least, I kind of skim over this rather quick. Because we can kind of talk about the majesty and the glory of God and miss, or not miss, but just kind of pass over quickly that he's a man hanging there on a cross. That Jesus is a man. He is a human being in the same way that you and I are human beings with a physical body. He was born as a man. He lived as a man. He died 
as a man, he was resurrected as a man, he ascended as a man, and the angel said in the same way that he left, he will return. And so when you think about it, it just kind of, maybe it's just me, but I just, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. So when we look at Jesus' life, we see he had a body just like us. He was born of a human mother. He was born in the same way that all human babies are born. He came out slimy and red with puffy eyes, fingernails like razor blades, just like every other baby that's been born. In Luke 2, we see that he grew up and increased in physical strength. He had to learn how to read and write and hold a fork like everyone else. He got tired. He had to sit down beside a well in John 4 after he fasted for 40 days in the book of Matthew. Guess what? He was hungry. He also had a mind like us. Luke 2 said that he grew, as Jesus grew up, he increased in wisdom. Hebrews 5 says that he learned obedience. He had to learn languages. He had to learn how to read. He had to learn how to say words. He had emotions like us as well. Throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus was troubled, sorrowful, he marveled at the centurion's faith. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. So when you read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus was so human that even those closest to him had no idea that he was God. And so there's this amazing part in Matthew 13 that shows us that the people in his hometown of Nazareth, his neighbors, his co-workers, his family, his friends, his classmates, they saw him nothing more than an ordinary man. Even his own brothers who had lived with him, shared a house with him, they didn't believe in him. And when he starts to do his ministry, they're all just like, isn't this just Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't this just the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? Isn't that amazing? For 30 years, God lived among them, but he was so man that nobody knew. He shared a house with his brothers, and they weren't like, hmm, right? This isn't Smallville where everyone's like, what's up with that Clark guy, right? <laughs> He's fully man. He's fully man. The Word became flesh and lived among us. And the Son of God here on the cross says, I thirst. And when we see that, it should just hit us of how much God came down to us. The God who created the oceans, the God who spoke all the rivers and brooks and streams into being, the God who hung all the clouds in the sky and created the whole water cycle of precipitation and evaporation, the God who thought up to take two chunks of hydrogen and plug it together with one chunk of oxygen and make the source of life for all things. That God is there on the cross and is thirsty and is powerless to quench his thirst. Whew. It's amazing. God became man. That he has to look down at Roman centurions and say, I, I'm thirsty. Can someone give me a drink? We should be struck with the distance between the throne of glory where Jesus reigned and the, the cries of a dying man on a cross saying, he's thirsty. Jesus, the glory and the majesty of God, and then thirsty on a cross 
and he traveled that distance because of his great love for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to come to die on a cross, to be beaten and bloodied and bruised and to be tortured and to even suffer to the point of being thirsty and unable to quench his thirst so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is what Jesus' words, I thirst, show us about himself. He isn't a God who stands far off from us. He isn't a God who looks off from a distance, cold and unconcerned. He's a God who enters right in. He lives as we live. He experiences what we experience, even to the base level of knowing what it means to be thirsty, to desire water, to refresh and revive our bodies and not have it available to us. This is amazing. This is amazing. I think sometimes we think about Jesus saving us like we're stuck in a deep, dark well, and Jesus comes to the top of the well, and he lowers a rope down, and he pulls us out. But when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus doesn't stand at the top of the well and lower the rope down. Jesus jumps in the well. Right? Jesus jumps down in the well. You are in the muck at the bottom of a well. It is dark. You cannot see anything. You are helpless and hopeless to save yourself. And all of a sudden, Jesus is beside you. I think any picture we have of how Jesus saved us, any, any imagery we can draw up, if it doesn't have Jesus so close to us that we can look in his eyes and reach out and touch him, that it's lost something of the intimacy and the closeness that the Bible presents to us of how Jesus saved us. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so I thirst means that Jesus is not just fully God, the High King of Heaven, but He was and is now fully man. And that He didn't just save us at arm's length, he comes close. He dwells among us. He experiences the same things we go through. Suffering, temptation, loss, betrayal, joy, weeping, exhaustion, and even thirst. Even thirst. So, I guess what I find so interesting about this is because Jesus is fully God, we can be blown away by verses like, I thirst. Right? We say, that's God on that cross saying, I thirst. And then when we come to verses like Philippians 2.10, we know that one day, every single knee on earth that has ever existed, every single person will bow in reverence to a carpenter from Nazareth. Whew. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus is fully God and fully man. What it means for the church. That's what it means for Jesus. We see the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God, fully man, on the cross, saying, I thirst. What does it mean for the church? 
What impact do these words have for us today who are his followers? First, they have a great implication for us in our coming to God in prayer. And if you flip over to Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says this, and really spells it out pretty clear for us, which is great. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men, in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so the writer of Hebrews is laying it out for us. Jesus is our high priest. He's gone through what we've gone through. He's fully God, fully man. The Word became flesh, lived as we lived, suffered as we suffered, tempted as we are tempted. So now, as we face various trials, sufferings, difficult situations, Jesus understands because He's been through it without sin. He's been through it all. He's been tempted yet without sin. He's suffered, yet without sin. He's able to sympathize with our weakness because He's been there. Jesus has been there. Do you remember mid-90s when Disney put out The Lion King? You do. <laughs> and there was the little blue bird named Zazu, right? Zazu gets trapped by Scar and he's in the, the ribcage prison and do you remember the song that he's singing? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. And then Scar yells at him. And then he goes into other songs, which I'm tempted to sing as well, but I won't. <clears throat> you almost had me, Joel. I almost started. But oftentimes when we encounter suffering, when we encounter trials, when we're locked in the ribcage in the prison, that's the same song that we sing, right? Maybe it's just me, but we, there's just a switch that flips in us and we just say, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows my sorrow. So we look around and we say, oh, that person's going through that thing, but it's not like my thing. And that person has that illness, but I would gladly take that illness if it meant I could get rid of this thing right? And we just look out and say, nobody has it as bad as me, and nobody understands where I'm at. But we cannot look at Jesus, fully God, fully man. We cannot look him in the eye and say, nobody knows, because Jesus knows. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what suffering you've gone through, no matter what hard spot you find yourself in, Jesus knows. And he doesn't just know because he's able now in all his glory to look in 
to the innermost parts of your heart. He knows because he's been there. So if you've experienced the loss of someone you cared about deeply and have been tempted to rail against God as cruel and unfair, Jesus knows. If you've ever been wrongly accused by someone who seemed intent on destroying your life and have been tempted to seek revenge and give them what they deserve, Jesus understands. If you're single and feel alone and you see your friends you grew up with getting married and are tempted to despair, Jesus understands. If you feel tormented by Satan, rejected by your family, betrayed by your closest friends, if you feel like you don't have a place to lay your head, Jesus understands those things too. Even to the point of suffering at such a base level as being thirsty, Jesus understands. And so to the 850,000 people who are suffering in the midst of a drought in Madagascar, they can look to Jesus and see someone who knows. He understands. To Christians around the world being tortured and enduring immense physical pain, Jesus understands. And Hebrews says that because of those very things, because Jesus is who he is and has lived a life just like us but without sin, we can come with confidence. We can come to him with confidence. We can come with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So Jesus isn't your university professor who stands at the front of the classroom and preaches theory, 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 but has never been out in the field to see it actually take shape. He's been there, and he understands, and he knows what it's like. And so whatever situation you're going through, Jesus knows. He knows. He doesn't just say, I see what you're going through, and uh, here's a formula that you can feel better. He says, I see what you're going through, and I've been there. Now come to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Man, if we get this, how would it change our praying? How would it change how we look to God? How would it shift our eyes off of ourselves and in our struggles and plant them on the one who understands and offers his powerful grace to see us through? Struggles wouldn't be like a, a wet blanket on our prayer life. Struggles would be the fire that ignites more praying, more praying, more praying, because we're praying to the one who understands and not only understands, who invites us and says, come to the throne of grace and receive from me. So I don't know what situation you're in right now, where you feel weak, where you feel dry, and maybe even you've talked to God this morning during worship and said, I'm weak in this. I can't keep going. I can't keep going. I'm weak. In that very weakness, whatever it might be, Jesus wants you to know this morning that he understands, that he understands what that's like. And Jesus says to you this morning, 
I know your weakness. I know it. And not because I look into you, but because I've been there. I've been there. I know it not just from afar. I know it because I've been there. And now come to me and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. And maybe this morning you feel like you're that little bluebird trapped in the prison and you feel trapped in the prison of that thinking of nobody knows what I've gone through. I think Jesus wants to set you free from that thinking this morning. He wants to set you free from that inward, nobody knows, I'm not going to get help from anybody because nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody's got it as rough as me. He wants to destroy that prison this morning and set you free because he knows and he's able to help. Not only our prayers, but Jesus' words, I thirst, affect our mission as well. They give us a model for us to follow. So we can be confident in coming to Jesus and looking at Jesus here and him saying, I thirst. We have a model for mission as well. Jesus emptied himself. He came in the trenches. He got dirty. He humbled himself. He experienced our situation looked not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others, and he served. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that that is now our model for as us as we go and share our lives so that others may know him. So Hebrews says in 13, 13, 3, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in a body. So... <laughs> I just love that. So he said, as you look at people and you see they're physically hurt, you remember them because guess what? You've got a body that can be physically hurt as well, right? And he says, as you see people in prison, uh, remember them because, um, how did he say it? As though you were in prison with them. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 to 26 says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so we don't need to, uh, we don't need to have gone through the similar experiences that someone has gone through, but we can come alongside and, and show that, that same empathy that we see in Jesus. So this Wednesday, as Mark mentioned, is our All Together out meeting, and we're going to take some time to discuss and seek God for how we can reach this city with the good news of Jesus. And I'm looking forward to that meeting, and I hope you're going to be there. But in all that discussion, there needs to be an understanding that we do not reach this city, we do not reach people for Jesus by standing far off and lowering ropes down wells. We don't stand far off and throw a rope down a well and say, here's Jesus, come on up. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's more than just ducking in and ducking out and somehow sharing the gospel in between. It's entering in, even to the point where, like Jesus, we experience the same kind of hardship, the same kind of eye-thirst moments as those we are trying to reach. So I'm excited about this Wednesday, and I think it's really the beginning of God 
uh, birthing something new in us as a church in passion and vision and, and strategy of how we can reach this city. And I think for some people, when you come on Wednesday morning, God's going to, sp- or Wednesday night, God's going to speak to you and you're going to move from standing afar off and holding the rope to tying the rope around a tree and jumping in the well. I think God's going to plant some things in people Wednesday night. So you can come, and I encourage you to come, but maybe it should come with a warning with it, that it might require you tying the rope to a tree and getting lowered down into the well. To weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and thirst with those who thirst in order that we might see some come to know Jesus. Lastly, what it means for the world. What it means for the world. Jesus says from the cross, I thirst. And I think John is doing much more here than just showing Jesus' physical thirst on the cross. Because when you read through the Gospel of John, you see over and over and over again a theme where he emphasizes Jesus' teaching concerning water and thirst. And here at the cross, I think John is once again highlighting that for us. And when he tells us of Jesus' words as he hangs on the cross, I thirst, and taking on the sin of the world and bearing the wrath of God, he's meaning for us to look back, to look back at John 4 and Jesus with the Samaritan woman where he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And we need to see Jesus bearing our sin on the cross. He's showing us the cry of every sinful person's heart. There is a heart, there is a thirst that we can never seem to quench. He's holding a mirror up to ourselves in our sin and saying, you're thirsty. John 7, Jesus It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so even this morning, 2,000 years later, Jesus isn't standing up at the end of a festival, but he is speaking to you by his Spirit, and he's saying, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. His offer still stands. He's showing us that when he took on your sin on the cross, his cry was, I thirst. And he makes himself available to you. He says, if anyone is thirsty... Come to me and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, which is the Spirit. Jesus says that His Spirit in you is so refreshing. It's like you're dry, and you're thirsty, and you're desperate for a drink of water, and suddenly you're immersed. Suddenly you're immersed in water that is so pure and so clean, it's almost like it's alive. Rivers of living water. 
flowing out from you. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that offer is extended to you. We look to Jesus on the cross and he says, I thirst. And you this morning echo that same cry and you come to Jesus and you say, I'm thirsty, I thirst. And Jesus says, you come and drink of me. Come and drink of me this morning. And so there's so much in Jesus' words saying, I thirst from the cross. We see what it means for him. Fully God, fully man. <laughs> what it means for the church. How it, how it increases our confidence and passion for coming to him and crying out to him in whatever situation we're in. Because we know that not only he understands, but he is able to help. And our mission as we follow him in those same uh, taking on our experiences to reach this city, but also for the whole world. As he takes on our sin, he says, I thirst. And then he says to us this morning, anyone who is thirsty, you've been looking all over the world, you've tried everything that the world has to offer, and still there's a thirst in you that's not quenched. Jesus promises, you come to me, drink of me, filled with my spirit, and that thirst will be quenched. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for how you work. We're so thankful for your great salvation. And we're just so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for all that he is and how we're just amazed when we see him and what he went through on the cross for us. And we're amazed at his great love for us. That love that drove him to do all that he did for us and make a way for us to come to God and to have that thirst quenched. And we just pray this morning as Christ Central Church that you would just plant that deep in us. We want to be a church that just has a great passion for prayer, that understands that we have a great high priest who's gone through what we've gone through who understands everything and it says come to my throne of grace and receive grace and mercy in your time of need we don't want to just read those verses and memorize those verses we want to put those verses into practice as a church and so i pray father that you would stir up by your spirit a great passion for prayer in us as a church um, because we want to be fully reliant on you we want to be fully reliant on you and we pray father that you would uh, stir up uh, a passion for this city and we're confident you're going to do some stuff Wednesday night and we look forward with expectation and so I pray that people would put aside any obstacles or hindrances and they would be there Wednesday night and they would uh, commit themselves to you and we're confident you're going to work because our heart is for this city we can think of name after name after name after name of people that don't know you who are thirsty for more of you and we pray, Father, that you would uh, answer our cries on Wednesday night, at least in the beginning, the beginning stages of what you can do. And we pray, Father, that if anyone's here who doesn't know you, who doesn't know what it is to have those rivers of living water, to be filled with the Spirit, uh, to know your presence in their lives, they would say, as you said on the cross, they would admit, I thirst. And we're confident you'll fulfill your promise to quench that thirst this morning.
Amen.